This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today we're getting to know the Romans of Britain, or to use Latin, Britannia. But who were these Romans living in Britain at that time? Where had they come from? And how did their way of life fit in with the existing British culture? Like a mosaic, the Roman occupation of Britain is a complex picture made up of tantalising and colourful pieces of information. And joining us to help piece together that picture are properties historian Andrew Roberts. Hello. And curator Cameron Moffat. Hello. So let's start off. Where did the Romans invade Britain and how easy was it for Roman forces to seize lands for their own use, Andrew? The Romans invaded Britain in AD 43 under the Emperor Claudius. They crossed the Channel from Boulogne in northern France and landed unopposed, probably at Richborough, which is a small place just north of Dover in Kent. Today, you can actually see at the English Heritage Site evidence of an anchorage that was protected by fortifications built by the Roman army. The response from the people of Britain is actually quite varied. We know the details of one short military campaign undertaken by the army to subdue the biggest immediate threat in the southeast, the Catavallauni. And the defeat of the Catavallauni really puts Rome in a dominant position in the southeast. Conversely, the Romans find it more difficult elsewhere. The Catavallauni are only one of many different British kingdoms. And particularly during their west and northwestly expansion in the 40s and 50s, the Romans suffer do suffer some significant losses. And also their hold on Britain looks a little bit tenuous during the Boudican rebellion of AD 60. Nevertheless, they overcome this and with concerted efforts to expand the province in the 17s and 80s, move into the north of England and and subsequently into Scotland. But of course, the Romans don't manage to complete the conquest of the entire island, stopping at around about the line of, of Hadrian's Wall by about AD 100. In all, Britain does seem to be quite a difficult province to subdue, particularly because of the stiff military resistance that they faced. But also throughout, the Romans would have benefited from establishing relationships with some of the existing elite groups who were, if not happy to work with the Romans, at least accepted their control. That's quite an interesting picture, isn't it, really? It's it's very easy to simplify things uh, in a history book for whatever age group or in a podcast, and actually it's a very nuanced picture, isn't it, with invasion, political negotiation, and lots of other things going on, including brute force. Exactly, and we, we tend to get quite a, a sort of a crude picture from a very Roman perspective from, from the history that we have, but actually there's probably a lot more nuance and events and negotiations going on behind the scenes that we never really hear about from the history. The Roman Empire obviously extended far beyond the shores of modern-day Italy. Britannia is obviously one of those areas. Who was the Roman army made up of at this time when it invaded Britain? Well, it's really important to kind of consider the army when we're considering who the Romans are in Roman Britain, because the army is really the face of Rome, particularly in the early decades of the province. The Roman army was comprised of legions, i.e. citizens of the Roman Empire, citizen soldiers, and auxiliaries who are essentially non-citizens, albeit those that were living within the empire and used to Roman rule. Both were recruited from across the many provinces of the empire, and that ranges from most of Europe to North Africa to the Middle East. 
So a typical Roman soldier, yes, they could come from Italy, but also they could come from places such as Spain or from Gaul or from wherever. Now, we don't know precisely which units made up the army that invaded Britain but it probably included legions previously serving in the province of Germania, modern-day Germany, Pannonia, modern-day Hungary. And we do also think that there were at least auxiliaries recruited from Thrace, uh, i.e. modern-day northern Greece and, and Germany, but there would have been others as well. So we're looking at maybe four legions roughly coming to Britain and probably at least the same amount of auxiliaries as well. So that's about 40,000 soldiers in total, albeit that is a, a bit of a guesstimate. But it's one that gives us an indicative sense of the invasion being a substantial influx of soldiers, and they're going to be quite a heavy presence in the province over the subsequent decades and centuries. Presumably, even though they come from different areas of the empire and from potentially conquered lands, they would have to adopt Latin as their common language, even if it wasn't their native language. Yes, they would. That's how they would have been instructed, and they would have expected to speak that in addition to any languages that they already had, and possibly picking up languages of the locality that they were stationed with. And they may have been stationed and then reposted to other locations. Sounds interesting to our modern ears, doesn't it, that it's almost a multinational army under one umbrella organisation. There is room for different languages, perhaps, but in terms of who you take your orders from, there's one commander-in-chief, and that's the emperor. And the adoption of Latin is sort of indicative of the fact they would have had to have adopted other Roman cultural practices as well, such as religion, such as Roman bathing, using and using Roman material goods. We've heard in a previous podcast that we've done that uh, soldiers of Hadrian's Wall were from across the Roman Empire. Could you give us an example of that? Well, Hadrian's Wall is built about 80 or so years into the conquest of Britain in around AD 122. And it's a very good example of how the pattern that's established in the early invasion is continued. We have movement of thousands of soldiers around the empire to run this vast military installation of a thousand strong garrison. And in AD 200, some 160 years after the Claudian invasion, the garrison of one of the forts of, of Hadrian's Wall, that's Bud Oswald, was the first cohort of Dacians. The original soldiers of this unit would have been recruited into the Roman army at around the time the Romans conquered Dacia, which is modern-day Romanian, around AD 100. And then they were sent to Britain in order to sever the connection with their, their homeland and bolster the provincial auxiliary force. And although the unit would have eventually recruited locally, their predecessors would have served and possibly retired in Britain. So this is one of the means by which the sort of turnover in terms of the population of Roman Britain. And it's a similar picture for, for serving garrisons of the rest of the wall, which were originally recruited from as far afield as Gaul, North Africa, even Syria. So we've set a bit of a context then for the Roman invasion and presence and multiculturalism within Britannia. Cameron, how complex was British society before the Romans arrived? Well, we absolutely mustn't underestimate um, the Iron Age Britons. Um, the, these were complex societies, but they were based on family and tribal groups within smaller regions, operating on a much smaller scale and with a very different material culture to the Romans. In the southeast, that Roman influence had been trickling over for some time, and it's there that we see the earliest coins produced, which were designed to imitate Roman coinage, and the adoption 
very early on of mass-produced uh, ceramics before the actual conquest. But in other parts of Britain, though people were not at all impoverished, what we see in the way of notable objects, bling, uh, these relate to elite individuals such as warriors, priests, chieftains. And I think it's very likely that before the conquest, most people in Britain measured their wealth in terms of the number of cattle that they owned. So it really was an agricultural society. What about the living arrangements between the native Britons and then the Romans who came in and eventually started building villas, etc.? The houses themselves were different. The Iron Age roundhouse, as opposed to Roman architecture based on the rectangle, but I think it was more of a question of density of occupation and of segregation. The Iron Age elite didn't necessarily have their own house. They would have lived in a larger house than the rest of the community, but probably had very limited privacy. What about the size of the roundhouses in relation to the eventual Roman villas? Some of the roundhouses were extremely large. And in, in terms of floor area, between the largest roundhouses and an average villa, there may not have been much in it. And it really did all come down to the look of it. Technology-wise, what did the Romans bring with them that would have been perhaps new and exciting for the native Iron Age peoples of Britain? If we look at what artisans were producing in Britain up until the conquest, Beautiful, attractive, complicated pieces of metalwork were being made, intricate chariots. But those craftspeople were retained specifically by the elite. There was no wider market to stimulate the development of new products. So I think it's useful to look at the differences between the two societies in terms of trade goods. A trade network across Europe and beyond had existed since the Bronze Age or the mid-third millennium BC. At the beginning, what everyone is trading is raw materials like metals and amber. By the time of the Roman invasion of Britain, we see that what is coming out of Britain hasn't really changed. We are still exporting metals, hides, honey, and slaves. What we are importing from Rome, however, looks very different. What is coming in this direction is manufactured goods and luxury goods. And the best example of those is probably wine and the glasses to drink the wine out of. So I suppose if you wanted to characterise the Roman invasion, the culture was sort of slightly more luxurious, more sophisticated, less utilitarian. Would that be an accurate appraisal? That is absolutely fair. And, and I think, again, it, it comes back to the scale on which everything is happening. There's so much more in the core areas of Rome and everybody wants a bit of that. And I suppose being in a different part of Europe with uh, more temperate climates and ability to grow different crops, then obviously there is more scope for these different goods to be imported, etc. So, Andrew, was there a Roman cultural template that was brought and imposed upon the Britons? Broadly speaking, yes. There is a sort of style of Roman life. Certainly there's a template for governance of provinces such as Britain. Bearing in mind what Cameron has said about the kind of the limited range and depth of Iron Age markets, I think the crucial vessel by which Roman culture is spread and the real qualitative and quantitative change with the invasion is the establishment of lots of towns because it's really urban living that characterizes the Roman Empire and, and allows it to function. And interestingly, this actually starts with the soldiers themselves 
who are not only actively campaigning and suppressing any resistance, but directly occupying the territory that they've taken from the people of Britain. Either they do this by establishing their military bases, their fortresses on um, existing British settlements, or else they found what we call colonia. These are essentially settler towns made up of military veterans who are kind of given some of the land in order to sort of raise a family and occupy the space previously owned by their enemies. These colonia essentially act as paradigms of Roman-style living for the local population. Now, beyond these, the former lands of conquered peoples were organized into regions called uh, Givitates, and these essentially are ruled from other newly established towns, and we know of around 15 regional capitals. Each would have had a population, something in, in, in the region of the tens of thousands of people. Examples include Roxeter, Silchester, Aldborough, and often their names preserve the names of the people of the area. So, for example, Roxeter is Viraconium Cornoviorum, the Cornovi being the previous elite group of the region. So it sounds as though these people who were effectively taken over were then given some kind of sweetener by the invading Roman forces. Yeah, that seems to be the case. The towns are presumably ordered into being and established by Roman officials, but they must have worked in partnership to a certain extent with members of the existing elite who are given or at least given back land and status and then expected to participate in the running of the town and thus the running of the region according to Roman principles. Now this would include the town becoming essentially part of this empire-wide trade network consuming imports from elsewhere in Britain, from other provinces in the empire, making goods themselves perhaps for, for export. And then from these towns, you essentially administer the Roman order in this particular area. That means that the area is under Roman law, under Roman taxation, which is, is hugely important. And of course, they're also places where Roman culture is practiced. Now, in a previous episode, we talked about bathing, for example, and another really important practice would have been the adoption of, of Roman religion. And we see that in the fact that in these towns, there are temples constructed and statues of gods would have been erected. However, it's important to remember that while there was a template, and you do see the same kind of elements in these towns again and again, and elements of Roman life, they're not necessarily identical places and there are local and, and regional quirks. Not everywhere adopts the same level of material culture. So for example, in Shropshire, in the countryside, there's a kind of a selective interest in Roman style goods. There are comparative limits, for example, in the production of Latin inscriptions beyond heavily militarized regions such as, as Hadrian's Wall. And Romanitas in Britain looks very different to, say, how the Romans live maybe in Gaul or in, or in Spain. How long do you think it would have taken for this Romanization to be well embedded in various places? Because obviously you've described that there are little quirks in various regions, even across the empire. So It's a really difficult question to answer because it's, there's so much potential complexity. Mm. And just because you might see archaeologically, the foundation of a town, such as, say, Roxeter, does that necessarily mean that all the people buy into it immediately? 
you know and how 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 fast and how far does roman life then radiate outwards from these towns just because people are using roman materials or roman goods does it necessarily mean that they're all living or engaging with rome in the same way or accepting rome in the same way so i'm going to sort of plead the fifth on this one because it's <laughs> it's potentially a much longer podcast and a much more complicated yeah. uh, answer than than the necessary we have we have scope for it's a really interesting question though isn't it uh, cameron you know i suppose it could be a generation it could be it could be a hundred years it could be longer it's a fascinating thought though i think it is. There was a lot of regional variability and there were places that the Roman influence really didn't get to. I mean, up in the northern parts of Scotland, I think Romanitas was not really an issue up there. But we've heard that religion was an important part of Roman culture. How did it fit in with the existing beliefs in Britain? In pre-Roman Celtic Britain, religion was based entirely in the natural world and specific kinds of places like rivers, lakes, and groves of trees. It was much, much less regimented than Roman religion. But the Britons and the Romans were all worshipping within the wider sphere of paganism, which meant that many aspects of the practice of religion weren't all that difficult to integrate. There were themed deities on both sides, gods and goddesses of war, gods and goddesses of fertility, and it was relatively easy to pair them up. For example, Sullis Minerva, the principal goddess at Bath, Sullis being a Celtic goddess who is conflated here with the classical Roman Minerva. And on both sides, people's relationships with their deities looked very similar. The gods required sustaining, and this took the form of sacrifices, often blood sacrifices, votive offerings, and participation in rituals. But there is evidence that there was imposition and aggression by the Romans. There were some early examples of the construction of massive classical temples dedicated to the imperial cult, which is the deified emperor, built in key places in the southeast like Colchester and London. And of course, the Druids, the powerful caste of priest scholars, they were immediately recognized as a threat by the Romans who obliterated them at their base in Anglesey in AD 61. So, yes, it's a kind of broad picture of religion and sort of the quasi-religion of um, worshipping the empire and the emperor, really. You would have seen lots of dif different statues and depictions around. You certainly would. I mean, the statues in general would have been quite classical in their subject matter and their execution, because overall... It was the incomers. It was the people who had come here with the army who were much more likely to commission a statue or a monument of some kind. Like the uh, arch at uh, Richborough Roman Fort, which we've discussed in a previous podcast, which was a monumental piece of uh, architecture. It certainly was. They're digging there at the moment, and uh, I'm eagerly anticipating to hearing the results of that new excavation. Absolutely, which we hope to bring to you here on the podcast as well. Well, there's an example at Wall Roman site in Staffordshire of this sort of convergence of beliefs we've talked about. Can you explain a bit more about that, Cameron? Yes, there is this group of nine building stones from Wall, which date to the late 1st or early 2nd century AD, which have these enigmatic carved images on them relating to Celtic cults. Five of the stones incorporate the image of a head, including a severed head and a screaming head, and a number of the heads have horns. 
Two of the stones depict tableaus. One shows two horned warriors facing each other in profile with a shield off to one side. And another, even more mysterious, shows two pairs of warriors with shields and one pair stands on one side. And on the other side, the other pair is shown horizontally. Maybe they're dead. Perhaps it's a, it's a battle scene. There are also in this group a couple of very crude inscriptions of Celtic-sounding names, which are either the deity represented or the person who funded the shrine that these stones came from. And as Wall is on, Wall is on the border between two tribal territories, one of which is the Cornovi, which Andrew has mentioned in the context of Roxeter, and that translates as the followers of the Horned One. The Horned One is probably a horned god of which there were quite a few in Celtic mythology. But overall, these are very non-Roman images. But there is another stone from this group with the depiction of a phallus on it, which is a classic Roman device giving protection against being cursed by the evil eye. But the most Roman thing about these stones is the simple fact that these images are depicted on stone. And here and elsewhere, the evidence suggests that the Britons actually appreciated the new styles the Romans brought with them and were keen to update their monuments accordingly. Andrew, the um, Roman occupation of Britain lasted nearly 400 years and it changed significantly over time. How did the political context change over those centuries? Well, we've been mainly dealing with sort of events and cultural phenomena of the, the first and second centuries. The third century saw a high turnover of emperors and some fairly regular political turmoil uh, within the empire. And indeed, Britain was often the cause of this. And sporadically, it was either asserting its independence from Rome or else the wellspring for rebellions by powerful provincial governors uh, moving against incumbent emperors. The cultural template that we talked about earlier changes, it evolves. People look differently in this period. There's change in fashion from everything from clothes to hairstyles. And of course, new religious practices. Christianity becomes uh, the official religion in this period. Towns that had previously developed during the relative stability of the late first and second century didn't see much investment in public buildings, but they did see investment in defenses, in, in, in walls. And where there's growth, there's growth in the establishment of military installations, particularly along the southeastern coast. We talked about Richborough. Well, that arch that you're talking about was yes, actually demolished. Repurposed, uh, yes. <laughs> demolished and repurposed as mortar to hold together the stones of the huge fort that seems to have been built in response to seaborne raiding in the area. Conversely, at the same time, smaller towns, so ones that don't have the same kind of official status as the Kivitas capitals, are, are actually thriving, places like Corbridge, for example. And in rural areas, villas had actually entered a sort of almost a golden period of, of high investment by the elite groups that owned them. Cameron, when did these Roman villas then become part of the physical and cultural landscape? Was it quite immediate after the invasion? Oh, I think it had been brewing up before then down in the southeast. At its simplest, a villa is is simply a farmhouse built to a rectangular plan in contrast to the uh, pre-existing Iron Age roundhouses. And in the southeast, small villas appeared early. And as you go further west and north, you see fewer and fewer villas. In the second century, they start to expand. We see wings being added and new agricultural outbuildings. 
and as Andrew has indicated, villas are very much linked with towns, the source of Roman influence and Roman goods, and wealthier villa owners often had a townhouse with a villa in the countryside nearby. Villas were often the centers of agricultural estates and sometimes industrial zones, and these were key elements of income generation for the payment of taxes to the empire. And again, as Andrew said, we see that in some very productive areas like the Cotswolds, villa owners had become very rich in the third and fourth centuries and ext were extending their villas and adding bath suites and mosaic pavements. And it's kind of funny that the Cotswolds nowadays seems quite similar, really, in many respects. <laughs> Still a nice area, yeah. Uh, regardless of what uh, time period you appear to be living in. Um, mm. This is a slightly off-piste question, but um, do we know what is the oldest discovered Roman villa in England? I'm going to say Fishbourne, but I'm, I'm not sure. I was going to say Fishbourne, yes. <laughs> I was, I was going to say Fishbourne as well, yes, where, where you have this spectacular, I mean, it's so palatial. It, 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 you, does it really qualify as a villa? But people do cite it as a villa, and it is um, enormous and is, is a, a sign that people are making big money early on through their connections with the Roman Empire. And whereabouts is Fishbourne? Is it Sussex? Chichester. Yes. West Sussex, I think, perhaps. Very interesting. Okay. And looking at the sort of spectrum of development of villas, do we know what the latest discovered one is? I think towards the end of the Roman period, people are tweaking their villas. They're not building new ones from scratch. They, <sighs> they keep expanding until quite late on. And then everything freezes and, and you see bits of villas that are simply left to go to rack and ruin and a concentration of inhabitation into a progressively smaller and smaller bit of the villa with the wings possibly given over to the stabling of animals and things like that. I can imagine that, that there's a peak, as you've described, and obviously then a gradual decline, which leads into my next question for Andrew, which was how gradual was the end of Roman rule in Britain? Well, from the historical writing that we have about the end of, of Roman Britain, we can see that Britain continues to be something of a drain upon the Roman state in the fourth century, thanks to, again, attacks by raiders, also thanks to it being a threat as a power base for various pretenders to the imperial throne. And then amidst turmoil and threats on Rome itself in around 400, uh, soldiers in Britain cease being paid. And then in 410, the Emperor Honorius officially tells the towns of Britain to fend for themselves. And while this may seem like uh, quite a sudden full stop, in more recent decades, our knowledge of the end, in inverted commas, has become far more nuanced thanks to archaeological discoveries. There really is a much slower transition out of, of Roman-style living you know, why, why would this just change overnight? The people living in Roman Britain are from Roman Britain. They've been living uh, here either all along or else settled for generations. So mm. there's not just a wholesale up and leave, because where would they go? Why would they go? Yes, they belong here, effectively, and would have bloodlines going back generations, potentially. Did a lot of Romans stay in Britain? I presume they would have done so if they were so part of the fabric of British Romano culture here? Yes, I, I, I would expect so. 
It is true that in the last decades of Roman rule, many soldiers were removed from the province to fight in various wars and, and uprisings and things. But that doesn't mean that all the soldiers of Roman Britain go home or else that the people in the towns disappear. A really good example of this is the evidence that was found at Burdelswald Roman Fort, which we mentioned earlier. So at the end of Roman Britain, some 200 years after the initial arrival of the Dacians, we're looking at a garrison that has been embedded in the locality for many generations, and that's reflected in the, the archaeology. So during the 1980s and early 90s, archaeologists found that at least part of the fort continued to be in use for a century or more after the nominal end of Roman rule in 410. The buildings do change rather than the sort of the standard stone military structures such as big granaries and, and barracks and things we have instead wooden buildings including a great wooden hall most importantly there's no break in occupation people don't leave and new people move in the same people that are living there under roman rule presumably the military garrison that operates the frontier of the empire hadrian's wall are still there and now we're sort of speculating a little bit but we might assume that they are running an independent settlement or maybe a series of, of settlements, a, a regional society that essentially lives off local resources and protects itself. So that's a clue that uh, one English heritage site uh, along Hadrian's Wall has left for historians and archaeologists who are trying to piece together this picture of what happened when the Roman military presence went away. Are there any other sites, uh, particularly English heritage sites, where you might get a different picture, where the departure is perhaps more abrupt or it's more extended? I think up until comparatively recently, we would have said that a complete full stop would have been the picture on most of our sites. But that's very much informed by what we assumed happened thanks to the historical evidence. And also thanks to the fact that archaeologists weren't necessarily equipped to find evidence of continuity when a lot of our sites were excavated in the early 20th century or the late 19th century. It seems that a lot of the continuation was not continuation in stone, and that doesn't necessarily show up in the archaeological record. And it's a complex area, and it's, a, it's an area that we're only really beginning to understand. And maybe in 10, 20 years, the picture will be very different. I would imagine, if I was to generalise, that what we're seeing is quite a lot of local variety. So in certain areas, we do get continuity, maybe due to certain advantages of the locality. In others, we probably don't. I think that's a reasonable presumption, isn't it? Because history is nuanced. There are lots of different cultures that exist within British Romano culture over generations and centuries. So, And there are individual pockets. So I think that's a fairly reasonable pre-conclusion to come to. But we will wait and see, obviously, what the scientists say. Finally, for both of you, why do you think the Romans continue to capture people's imaginations to such an extent? I, I think one major factor has to be the art and literature they produced and the extent to which these survive today, which have the potential to give us such direct insights into their culture and beliefs. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I think that despite the fact that we are dealing with an empire that ended in Britain over 1500 years ago, it's quite astonishing that English heritage alone looks after over 50 Roman sites in England. These are the forts, the towns, the villas that we've discussed. 
And there are, of course, hundreds more that you can visit and thousands that are still buried or yet undiscovered. And I think that when you combine that very accessible cultural legacy that you and Cameron just spoke of with such a substantial archaeological footprint, it gives people the opportunity to dive deeply into historic society and immerse themselves in the Roman world. There's such a big picture to soon develop, I think, isn't there? And the more you dig and the more science advances, the more you find and the more that mosaic, as we described in the introduction, begins to come to life with more and more colour. Yes, I think that if we did this podcast again in five or ten years, we'd have an even more nuanced and sophisticated picture and we probably would revise a lot of what we've said today. But hopefully both of you will both be available to come back and do an update. (laughs) Of course. What a nice thought. (laughs) You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, to mark the 100th anniversary of the first Poppy Day, we'll look at the history of wearing poppies to commemorate members of the armed forces who died in service. Until then, thanks for listening, and see you next time.